right, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dustin Pendell and Bob Larson. Morning, guys. Good morning, Good Brad. Morning. Nice crisp morning here in Manhattan as we look forward to a weekend. We've got football coming up this weekend with the Super Bowl. Absolutely, and uh, we've got some questions concerning oh. Super Bowl. Specifically, we're going to talk about food and uh, footballs. So, uh, Super Bowl is one of the largest television events or whatever television but we're on um, consumption food oh food we're talking about yep. food okay and so actually it is the second largest u.s food consumption mm. day only well, behind I mean, thanksgiving thanksgiving it's gotta thanksgiving. be yep yeah. exactly uh can you guess what the most popular super bowl super bowl snacks are uh, the top two chips yeah i was gonna say like chips and salsa that type of thing and uh maybe maybe little smokies <laughs> <laughs> they're 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 hit at our house. We know what happens at your house on Super yeah. Bowl Sunday. Well, little Smokies didn't quite make the oh, list. Okay. Uh, chips were a close kind of third. Oh, uh, so okay. about eleven point two million pounds of potato chips were expected to be consumed on Sunday. Uh, Four million pounds of pretzels, two point five million pounds of nuts. Top two are wings oh. and pizzas. Huh? Okay. Wings and pizzas. Specifically, just for wings, one point. Three eight billion wings. Wow, and we have a lot of really good snacks for Super Bowl, and it, but it's never pizza and wings. So we must we're not we're kind of outside the norm, I guess. And just to tell you a little more about one point three eight billion wings. If they were laid end to end, they would stretch back and forth between Foxborough, Massachusetts, and L.A. twenty eight times. Wow, are you serious? That's a lot. That's a lot. Of- that doesn't seem hardly possible. <laughs> doesn't seem possible. Uh, 1.38 billion wings weigh 6,600 times more than the combined weight of both the Packers or uh, Patriots, sorry, and the Rams, the entire rosters. So somebody's doing their homework on on the wing consumption. On the wing consumption. Yeah. Now, so we're talking chicken here, but we can also bring in the beef. Uh, Super Bowl is the second biggest grilling weekend of the year. Seriously, behind uh, Labor Day. Memorial, Memorial Day. Fourth of July. Fourth of July. July. Okay. Uh, some 14 billion burgers will be served. Wow. Well, there you go. That's I'm going there. A lot you of have burgers. burgers at your house? We do. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so that's just a little bit on the food side. So now we'll switch gears and talk about footballs. Okay. Uh, can anybody guess how many footballs are made for the Super Bowl? For the Super Bowl? Uh, this is 200. Oh, I was going to go a little bit lower than that. So uh, I'll go 100. Uh, so it's kind of a trick question, I guess. There are 108 footballs will be used in the Super Bowl. And how many of them are deflated and how many are fully inflated? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a different question. That's a different question. Uh, there are actually 216 that are made, so 108 okay. for each team. Each team then gets 54 for practice and 54 for the game. And okay. they are sent uh, within 48 hours of winning the championship um, to the to, to the, the teams. to the teams to practice okay. with, and each uh, or got time to have deflate. twelve and a half to thirteen point <laughs> five pounds uh, psi. So, next question. Uh, I got two more questions. Approximately how many how many steers heavy native steers for those balls for those for those footballs? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'd, Trying to picture, you know, to get a good ball out of a hide. I'm sure they'd take kind of the thicker part of the hide. So, oh, let's say 50 steers. 50 steers. I don't think think it's that many. I'm I'm going to say 25. Okay. Uh, Approximately 20, 22 or so. There you go. Yeah. Yep. And the final question, 
for every single Super Bowl, all the Super Bowls have been at the same facility in Ohio. Oh, okay. Uh, there have been three words that have shown up on each football for every every single football made for every single Super Bowl. Can you guess what those three words are? Wilson. Wilson is one of them. Um, football. No. No? Okay. Super Bowl? No. Uh, well, because the first one won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, hmm. Hmm. Made. Made in. In Ohio. the USA. USA. Oh, Made okay. in the USA. Third one is probably a little harder. It's commissioner. Oh. Yeah. I would never have guessed that. No. But. Okay. So they're making the rules. I guess. Office. I guess. So that's okay. that's a little bit of uh, trivia for you. Uh, so it's going to take 22 steers to make, uh, what did you say, 200 footballs? 216 footballs. All right. So big day. Big day. Big day. Should, be, should be fun at the at the Super Bowl. And as we, as we uh, go through today, there's a couple, couple things we want to talk about. So we want to address a question from one of our listeners. We're going to talk about variability in cow-calf returns and some of the, some of the drivers and influencers that we have there. And we'll talk about getting close to calving, wrap up with some of the news. But I wanted to get to, last week we talked to, about getting into veterinary school, mm-hmm. how to get into veterinary school, some of the things to look at if you're a student, perspective, or if one of your children wants to go to veterinary school. W- what we didn't talk a lot about, and one of the listeners, and I appreciate him sending in, uh, a good question on, we didn't address income to debt ratio. Yes. And and that's that's a really important aspect because... That has changed over time. Since you graduated from veterinary school a few years ago, That's and right. I graduated a few years ago, even since then, it's different. So as you look back 30 years, 20 years, even 10 years ago, mm-hmm. that income to debt ratio has changed. And one of the things that, that we see, and, and you may just, Bob, you want to address that question a little bit? And Dustin, you can throw in some of the econ perspectives. Well, one of the things that we've seen is is the the cost of education is being increasingly borne by the students, and there's, in some ways, there's some logic behind that because the students are the ones that benefit from that knowledge base. But one of the changes that that has really what do you, what do you mean the cost is being borne? The so, cost is going up. Well, um, the the cost borne by the students is because basically in when I was in school, the state so takes state taxpayers did a lot more of the paying for uh, a college education for students. And that, that's across all, all majors. And, and that is that, that percentage coming from the state has decreased over time and, and been borne more by the students themselves. Is, is that only Kansas or oh, is no, that? This is, this is across the nation and it's across all uh, degree types. So it's not just veterinary medicine. It's, it's really, it's been a phenomenon that's been going on for several decades. And it's, and it's, um, it's it's probably a longer conversation than this podcast, but there's ways to look at it two ways. One is society benefits from a, from the education, but financially, the person getting the education benefits. And so, who what's the right what's the right share between those two? And that is and basically one of the things that's changed. What no matter what that the best answer is, it's changed. Um, and so the students have a much larger debt than they did when I went to school. And incomes have increased over time, but not at the rate that the debt has increased. So, yeah, I would uh, echo that. I mean, we're talking about the veterinary debt-to-income ratio, but I think it's a much bigger issue. It's a societal. I mean, it's not just veterinarians. It's whether you're in College of Ag or in business school or wherever, and it's much larger. And it is driven largely by the state funding, although I'm not sure maybe federal funding, too, is 
it probably hasn't increased at least in real dollars. Not in real dollars. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the important point: is it it has increased. So we talk about the the students' share of that debt as it's increased, but the starting salaries have have increased some. And we look at we think about veterinarians getting out; their starting salaries have increased some over time, but it hasn't been as dramatic. So if you plot those two things out, the debt over time and it's the starting salaries rap- more rapidly, than the, the debt salaries. has increased more rapidly. And just to give you some exact information, uh, you know, what a week and a half ago we had the the rural. Yes, when we were talking yep. to the young yep. veterinarians. And we got some, I guess, some information from the American Veterinary Medical Association, uh, Matt Saloy and his his economics division staff put together put together a lot of, of really nice economic information. And one of the slides that they had sent was looking at exactly what you just mentioned, Brad, and that was looking at the uh, real debt across time compared to the real uh, weighted income. And so if you compare just 2001 to 2018, on average, uh, the debt has gone up by about $5,500 per year, which is what you described. Now the income, that real weighted income, has went up by about $820, $825 per year. So you can... So you said 5500 per year on the debt debts, increase on and average. 850 salary increase yeah. on average. And so that's, you, you mentioned is that uh, the widening, the widening yeah. between debt and income, and that's just to give you some numbers around yeah. that. Well, I think, and that that shows up in a lot of different ways. One way, when I was coming through school, a lot of times people paid off that educational debt pretty quickly. It was considered something that you handled early in your life and then moved on to other debts. When you're talking larger amounts of debts, a lot of times that means uh, basically taking those payments out over a much longer period, which it changes the dynamics. Again, I'm, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't know what is the best way to do things, but it certainly changes the dynamics. But the, the investment is to pay out over that career. And I would say one thing that, that I've observed, especially over the last few years, well, as you look at students that come out, the variability in starting salaries is, is not all that high. The very built, so the top to bottom student, so, yeah. it's, I mean, it's in a pretty tight range. The variability in debt load is really quite high. And we'll, we'll go from zero to 300,000 plus yeah. on debt load, depending on their situation. So I think the important, and our take home from this discussion is, it can be a good investment to go to veterinary school, lifetime average, but you need to plan for you because everybody's an individual. The average doesn't describe everybody. The average doesn't describe everybody. In fact, I think the averages describe relatively few people mm-hmm. in this case and that there's uh, above and below average. So I think it's important plan that before you go. So great, great question from our listener. And anytime you have questions, be sure to send them in. But I think looking at that and planning forward is, is important. Shift, shifting gears a little bit as, as we start to think about Cow-calf, and speaking of planning and talking about Mm -hmm. some of the things that happened, as we look at last year and we think about what our production looked like, one of the things we often get a question on is what type of returns or what type of expenses income I would expect. And, And Dustin, you've done some summaries in the past, and one of the things that you looked at was you looked at in Kansas differences in cow-calf returns. And we can figure this a couple ways with all costs included, like land cost, labor cost, or we can figure a return over variable costs. And I want to address that a little bit because one of the things that, that when you summarize the 2012 to 2016 data, so this is a couple years old, but when it came out, the average return for a 
cow-calf producer, return over variable cost was $200 per head. Now, remember, that doesn't have land costs or anything in right. there. If we put those things in there, it's about $35 a head. But for this, let's do over variable cost. It was about $200 per head. The top third of producers, $366 per head. Bottom third, $44 per head. So back to big. our averages okay. don't define... Pretty big differences. Everybody. So what's, what's driving that? What are some of the things that we can do or we should look at? So I think, yeah, just coming back to, I think it's a good point is you shouldn't just look at an average. I mean, it's, it's really that distribution because there are some folks that are at the high end and there's some that are way down there at that bottom end. Uh, things to think about in terms of variability, there's a lot of things that are driving that. Uh, just for example, take feed costs. If you were to look at the top third and the bottom third, of course, I don't know what that report is off the top of my head, but uh, I suspect there's a pretty big difference. And then it's not only the, it's the feed that maybe you purchase or that you raise, but then it's also pasture expenses as well. And I'm guessing the pasture expenses are probably not that different from the top third to the bottom third. Yeah, you're right. So the pasture expenses are not, are not very different. In fact, pasture expenses are a little higher for the top third and feed costs a lot lower compared to the bottom third. And so, so they're spending... They're making trade-offs mm -hmm. between do I keep my cows in the pasture longer? Right. I can reduce my feed expenses. So I might be willing to pay a little more for the pasture, but then you got that pretty big savings on the feed side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, the savings I, on the feed side makes up a lot of that. And, and, and that's back to planning and understanding the high degree of variability between the top. It's not a tight grouping that everybody's about the same and does things the same way. And actually, yeah, people do things differently. And, and a lot of times, that to me, when I look at some of those numbers, particularly comparing the, the, the average or the middle, that middle third to the top third, there's no one big, huge uh, home run difference. It's, it's really kind of a little more productivity. So a few more cows pregnant, a few more calves weaned, a little better marketing, a little better cost control. And so it, it's not any one thing that's largely different between the, the, the middle third and the top third. It's it's doing a number of different things, just a little bit better. And again, that kind of usually comes down to planning and, and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is a great time to year to look at planning, planning for the future. And our, and our topic for our BCI Cattle Chat checklist today is we wanted to talk about what are some of the things that we can do in the winter or at this time of year, either in the office or in the shop to kind of plan, make 2019 go as well as possible. So we came up with our top six things that we would do. Number one, which is not fun, nobody really enjoys doing, but preparing for taxes. Dustin's making a face because he enjoys preparing yeah, for taxes, yeah, but I, the I, rest I, of us. <laughs> but it is something, this is a good time of year to do it. Into January, you've got some of your statements coming in. Uh, from some of the different businesses you worked with, start putting those together and get on it before things get busy in the spring. Yeah. Well, not only are we spending some extra time in the office maybe over the winter, but we're also spending a little extra time in the shop. And it's, an, it's a time to think about all the, the pieces of equipment that we might have that, that uh, could use some up, upgrading and repair. So spend a little time in the shop. Yeah. So next, think about evaluating how 2018 went. So hopefully you wrote out some objectives and some goals for 2018. You know, back in January of 2018 or even December of 2017, uh, maybe you put together some kind of uh, forecasts or looked at some enterprise budgets for the for what's going to happen in 2018. So now you can go back and say, okay, how did I do? Where did I do well? Maybe where did I miss? 
and just kind of evaluate uh, 2018. And I, th I think that's a good process to go through, e even if it's just you. Writing those things down lets you evaluate them as they come out. So number, number four on our cattle chat checklist of things to do this winter when you have a little bit of time is plan the breeding season. And that encompasses a couple things. One, what dates am I planning on breeding? Two, look at my breeding stock. Do I need to start looking at when the bull sales are? Do I need to go purchase a bull this spring? Do I have that plan in place? Yeah. Well, and not only planning on the animal production side, but looking at our, our grazing and the farming operation, basically planning there. And again, I'm going to have kind of a, a livestock focus, but you know, particularly those uh, farming um, options such as cover crops or some plant, uh, some tame grasses that we might be planting or something like that. So plan out the grazing. Uh, you know, tis the season for extension meetings over the winter, and so number six would be identify local state uh, information sources, which then leads us into I think our next topic, and that is there are a number of uh, extension meetings, at least in the state of Kansas. Other states will have these as well. But just a few, you know, you've got your uh, your marketing risk assessed marketing meetings. Uh, we have lease workshops throughout the state here over the next month or so. Uh, you have your crop schools coming out of the agronomy department, corn, soybeans, etc. Uh, and then here in what on the sixth or seventh of yeah, February, you've yeah. got uh, women managing the farm conference here on campus, and those all can be found at agmanager.info. Uh, the animal science also has a number of. Uh, uh, workshops, uh, meetings coming up over the next probably month, month and a half. So you got your Swine Profitability Conference, which is I believe next week. Uh, you got your KSU Winter Ranch Management meetings that are being held right now. Cattlemen's Day is coming up. Uh, Sheep Day, Dairy Day, etc. And those can all be found on the Animal Science website, and, and we'll post all those. Uh, in the show notes as well. It's a great time of year to try something new or do something new. A, a, a couple years ago, my son and I went to, they had a swine youth day here, and that is not in my experience area, but Nick and I went, we, we had a blast just going and learning about a new topic and how to do some of those things. Yeah. So it's a great time of year to plan those out. So our, our cattle chat checklist, things to, things to do uh, when you have a minute this winter is prepare for taxes, do some equipment repairs, evaluate 2018, how did it go? Number four, plan the breeding season. Number five, plan your grazing or planting. Number six, find those new information sources or meetings that you can go to. And we'll put a list of those, as, as Dustin said, in the, in the show notes. Uh, one of the other things that we wanted to address today is, and, and I'll ask you, Bob, as we, as we come up on calving we've talked a, a little bit about calving a couple times the last few weeks because people are starting to do it we're starting to yeah. see, hear people calving and one of my questions is are my cows ready and 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 how would i know well, i think one of the most important things is cows head into the calving season is make sure they're in adequate body condition most people use kind of a, a nine point scale where one is very thin and nine is very heavy and, and so where you really want a cow to calve is around a five or a little better. And if she's younger, if she's, this is her first calf, then a lot of times we talk about a body condition score six. So going out there and looking at the cows, making sure. Tell, tell me what a six looks like. All right. So a six has a, if, if you look at them now, and the other problem is this time of year is with the hair coats, it takes a little more effort to see them and it's actually better to put your hands on them, but it has a little bit of fat cover over the ribs, uh, starting to have a little bit of fat cover, you know, it's kind of excess fat. Um, over the tail head and down in the brisket, 
versus a five, which tends to have some pretty decent fat cover coming back over the ribs, but you don't see those kind of extra dimples of fat over the, the tail head or down in the brisket. So slight differences there as, but those cows are in pretty good body condition. And, and the reason is, of course, um, she's going to have a calf, so she needs the energy to uh, go through the birthing process. She's going to immediately start uh, milking. She's going to start lactating for that calf. That's a big energy drain. And so she, she needs a little bit of extra energy she can pull off of her back fat uh, to supplement what she's getting in her feed. So ha having her ready to go, if she's not ready now, what can I do? Well, you can increase the plane of nutrition, um, and that's an important thing to do, and that basically depends on what forages are available to me, what, what other uh, feeds are available. Um, and, and also, when are we calving? Because we, you know, you talk about the average isn't always descriptive. We've got people that have started calving the first part of January, others that aren't going to start calving till April or so. So the timing of when we're going to need that body condition matters as well. Absolutely. So, so give them a check at this point. I would encourage just yeah, regardless write it of, down. Yeah, regardless of where they're calving, I need to know where they are and make sure they're not getting thin. Yeah, because I, I, I think that's something, and we've talked about it a fair bit. If you, if I look at them every day, it's hard for me to see subtle changes. So you can even take a picture today and in a month and say, oh yeah, they look like they're in about the same flesh or they look like they're getting a little thinner. Uh, tell you a little bit about the nutritional plan. Last thing, I want to talk a little bit about something that's been in the news, and there were several articles that came out on this uh, new study that was done, and it came out in the Journal of Agricultural Systems, and it was a life cycle assessment of the beef cattle life cycle, and they really looked at all aspects, and one of the things that has been a discussion point for the beef industry, whether we talk sustainability or environmental impact or several areas, is the large impact of the beef cattle on the environment. There's been a couple books that have talked about that. When you actually look at the numbers and you look at this latest assessment, their numbers that they have estimated are far lower than what has been reported. And, and I want to read you a couple of those and then get you guys' reaction to this. One of the things that they talked about is uh, beef cattle are responsible for 3.3% of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., which was a lot lower than mm -hmm. what was estimated previously. Uh, cattle consume just 2.6 pounds of grain per pound of, of carcass weight. Uh, they, the corn used to feed beef cattle represents about 9% of the harvested corn in the U.S., contrast with ethanol, which is about 37.5% of the corn harvested in the U.S. And on average, it takes about 308 gallons of water to produce a pound of boneless beef. So one of the estimates previously was it took up to 24,000 gallons of water mm -hmm. to produce a pound of boneless beef. So vast differences in those in those estimates and the total impact. Thoughts? I know you guys have read some of the same stuff. Well, I think one of the things to, to think about when you think about beef production is, I mean, we're, we're talking about Mother Nature. We're talking about a, a cycle. You know, you talk about water cycles, carbon cycles, those kinds of things. But, but cattle are an important part of nature. I mean, our, our ruminants are. It doesn't have to be cattle, but they're pretty efficient. Uh, you know, so they. What do you, what do you say? Because because of the conversion, what are what are you? Yeah, they're basically uh, a, a, the most abundant energy source on planet Earth is cellulose, which is plant plant material, and humans and other uh, animals like us, monogastrics like pigs and chickens and humans, don't consume and get a lot of energy from that cellulose, and so the fact that that beef cattle, other ruminants, um, can consume 
what is really not digestible by anybody else and convert that into foodstuffs is, is really kind of the niche that, that ruminants fit into, that cattle fit into. So it's not surprising to me that, that actually in the scheme of things, they fit into Mother Nature pretty well. Yeah, I, I would concur. You see a lot in, in the social media talking about the, the idea that the grass, right, you know, the, the cattle or, you know, sheep, goats consume the cattle things that, or consume that grass, something that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't normally consume. Uh, numbers are interesting. So you say that is the USDA study. Do you know what the, was it previously the USDA or was that private no, there were uh, there were a couple. Some of the other numbers I quoted came from other books that were either based on studies or estimates by individual authors. Okay. Yeah. No. I think, of course, as as we learn more, as we gain more, have, have access to more data, I think we can always continually to refine our numbers. And hopefully, some of those earlier numbers that were much larger were just maybe not guesses, but I think they were guesses. Broad, they were broad. Broad estimates at the least. So I think that's one of the important things is you, you get that anchoring in your mind that right. it's a really, that cattle are a really important contributor to X issue. But then you actually look at the numbers and you say, well, they're, they're probably not as high. So I think it's important for all of us to continually look at what, and I think that's what you're saying, Dustin, continually right. look at what new comes out. Continue to look at, and it's nice to have a, a, a USDA yep. conduct research as opposed to, because some people, you know, if they're private individuals, scientists, which again, we're not saying they're anything's wrong. It's just sometimes the perception is well, it's being paid by yep. company A or company B, and yes. could have some bias in it. Yep, could be a little bit different. And we see multiple when we see multiple studies on the same thing, it gives a little more credence as well. So the last thing I want to wrap up with is our our BCI beef tip, and our beef tip this week. So we talked about getting the cows ready for calving, but our beef tip this week is related to dystocia or calving difficulty. Bob, so the 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 beef tip for a difficult calving is use lots of lubricant or lube. I, I was actually talking to a producer the other day that says, "Man, when uh, our vet came out, they used about three times as much lube as we ever do." And I said, "Yeah, that's one of the secrets that veterinarians learn is." is uh, lube is relatively inexpensive and it really makes those difficult calvings go better. The one concern is because particularly right here in Manhattan uh, over the next few days, it's gonna be cold, lube does freeze. And so if you if you want to have plenty of lube available for a difficult calving, uh, keep, Don't it in keep it in the barn. No, keep it in a warm place and have plenty, um, however much you think you'll need, eh, double the order. Excellent. Good beef tip for this week. If you have a beef tip that, that you'd like for us to share or you have a question or comment on the podcast, email us at bci at ksu.edu and we'll talk again next week.